Chapter Two of The Girl in the Golden Atom by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Into the Ring. The cigars were lighted and dinner over before the doctor broached the subject uppermost in the minds of every member of the party. A toast, gentlemen, he said, raising his glass, to the greatest research chemist in the world. May he be successful in his adventure tonight. The chemist bowed his acknowledgment. You have not heard me yet, he said, smiling. But we want to, said the very young man impulsively. And you shall. He settled himself more comfortably in his chair. Gentlemen, I'm going to tell you first, as simply as possible, just what I have done in the past two years. You must draw your own conclusions from the evidence I give you. You will remember that I told you last week of my dilemma after the destruction of the microscope. Its loss and the impossibility of replacing it led me into still bolder plans than merely the visual examination of this minute world. I reasoned, as I have told you, that because of its physical proximity, its similar environment, so to speak, this outer world should be capable of supporting life identical with our own. By no process of reasoning can I find adequate refutation of this theory. Then again, I had the evidence of my own eyes to prove that a being I cannot tell from one of my own kind was living there, that this girl, other than in size, differs radically from those of our race, I cannot believe. I saw then but one obstacle standing between me and this other world, the discrepancy of size. The distance separating our world from this other is infinitely great or infinitely small, according to the viewpoint. In my present size, it is only a few feet from here to the ring on that plate, but to an inhabitant of that other world we are as remote as the faintest stars of the heavens, diminished a thousand times. He paused a moment, signing to the waiter to leave the room. This reduction of bodily size, great as it is, involves no deeper principle than does a light contraction of tissue, except that it must be carried further. The problem, then, was to find a chemical sufficiently unharmful to life that would so act upon the body cells as to cause a reduction in bulk, without changing their shape. I had to secure a uniform and also a proportionate rate of contraction of each cell in order not to have the body shape altered. After a comparatively small amount of research work, I encountered an apparently insurmountable obstacle. As you know, gentlemen, our living human bodies are held together by the power of the central intelligence we call the mind. Every instant during your lifetime, your subconscious mind is commanding and directing the individual life of each cell that makes up your body. At death, this power is withdrawn, each cell is thrown under its own individual command, and dissolution of the body takes place. I found, therefore, that I could not act upon the cells separately so long as they were under control of the mind. On the other hand, I could not withdraw this power of the subconscious mind without causing death. I progressed no further than this for several months. Then came the solution. I reasoned that after death 
the body does not immediately disintegrate. Far more time elapses than I expected to need for the cell contraction. I devoted my time then to finding a chemical that would temporarily withhold, during the period of cell contraction, the power of the subconscious mind, just as the power of the conscious mind is withheld by hypnotism. I'm not going to weary you by trying to lead you through the maze of chemical experiments into which I plunged. Only one of you, he indicated the doctor, has the technical basis of knowledge to follow me. No one had been before me along the path I traversed. I pursued the method of pure theoretical deduction, drawing my conclusions from the practical results obtained. I worked on rabbits almost exclusively. After a few weeks, I succeeded in completely suspending animation in one of them for several hours. There was no life, apparently, existing during that period. It was not a trance or coma, but the complete simulation of death. No harmful results followed the revivifying of the animal. The contraction of the cells was far more difficult to accomplish. I finished my last experiment less than six months ago. Then you really have been able to make an animal infinitely small? asked the big businessman. The chemist smiled. I sent four rabbits into the unknown last week, he said. What did they look like going? asked the very young man. The chemist signed to him to be patient. The quality of diminution to be obtained bothered me considerably. Exactly how small the other universe is, I had no means of knowing, except by the computations I made of the magnifying power of my lens. These figures, I know, must necessarily be very inaccurate. Then again, I have no means of judging by the visual rate of diminution of these rabbits whether this contraction is at a uniform rate or accelerated. Nor can I tell how long it is prolonged for the quantity of drug administered, as only a fraction of the diminution has taken place when the animal passes beyond the range of any microscope I now possess. These questions were overshadowed, however, by a far more serious problem that encompassed them all. As I was planning to project myself into this unknown universe and to reach the exact size proportionate to it, I soon realized such a result could not be obtained were I in an unconscious state. Only by successive doses of the drug, or its retardant, about which I will tell you later, could I hope to reach the proper size. Another necessity is that I place myself on the exact spot on the ring where I wish to enter and climb down among its atoms when I have become sufficiently small to do so. Obviously, this would be impossible to one not possessing all his faculties and physical strength. "'And did you solve that problem, too?' asked the banker. "'I'd like to see it done,' he added, reading his answer in the other's confident smile. The chemist produced two small paper packages from his wallet. "'These drugs are the result of my research,' he said. "'One of them causes contraction and the other expansion by an exact reversal of the process. Taken together, they produce no effect, and a lesser amount of one retards the action of the other. He opened the papers, showing two small vials. I have made them, as you see, in the form of tiny pills, 
each containing a minute quantity of the drug. It is by taking them successively in unequal amounts that I expect to reach the desired size. There's one point that you do not mention, said the doctor. Those vials and their contents will have to change in size as you do. How are you going to manage that? By experimentation I have found, answered the chemist, that any object held in close physical contact with the living body, being contracted, is contracted itself at an equal rate. I believe that my clothes will be affected also. These vials I will carry, strapped under my armpits. Suppose you should die or be killed, would the contraction cease? asked the doctor. Yes, almost immediately, replied the chemist. Apparently, though I am acting through the subconscious mind while its power is held in abeyance, when this power is permanently withdrawn by death, the drug no longer affects the individual cells. The contraction or expansion ceases almost at once. The chemist cleared a space before him on the table. In a well-managed club like this, he said, there should be no flies, but I see several around. Do you suppose we can catch one of them? I can, said the very young man, and forthwith he did. The chemist moistened a lump of sugar and laid it on the table before him. Then, selecting one of the smallest of the pills, he ground it to a powder with the back of a spoon and sprinkled this powder on the sugar. Will you give me the fly, please? The very young man gingerly did so. The chemist held the insect by its wings over the sugar. Will someone lend me one of his shoes? The very young man hastily slipped off a dancing pump. Thank you, said the chemist, placing it on the table with a quizzical smile. The rest of the company rose from their chairs and gathered around, watching with interested faces what was about to happen. I hope he is hungry, remarked the chemist, and placed the fly gently down on the sugar, still holding it by the wings. The insect, after a moment, ate a little. Silence fell upon the group as each watched intently. For a few moments nothing happened. Then, almost imperceptibly at first, the fly became larger. In another minute it was the size of a large horsefly, struggling to release its wings from the chemist's grasp. A minute more, and it was the size of a beetle. No one spoke. The banker moistened his lips, drained his glass hurriedly, and moved slightly farther away. Still the insect grew. Now it was the size of a small chicken, the multiple lens of its eyes presenting a most terrifying aspect, while its ferocious droning reverberated through the room. Then suddenly the chemist threw it upon the table, covered it with a napkin, and beat it violently with the slipper. When all movement had ceased, he tossed its quivering body into a corner of the room. "'Good God!' ejaculated the banker, as the white-faced men stared at each other. The quiet voice of the chemist brought them back to themselves. That gentleman, you must understand, was only a fraction of the very first stage of growth. As you may have noticed, it was constantly accelerated. This acceleration attains a speed of possibly 50,000 times that you observed. Beyond that, it is my theory, the change is at a uniform rate. He looked at the body of the fly, lying inert on the floor. You can appreciate now, gentlemen, 
the importance of having this growth cease after death. "'Good Lord, I should say so,' murmured the big businessman, mopping his forehead. The chemist took the lump of sugar and threw it into the open fire. "'Gosh,' said the very young man, "'suppose when we were not looking another fly had—' "'Shut up,' growled the banker. "'Not so skeptical now, huh, George?' said the big businessman. "'Can you catch me another fly?' asked the chemist. The very young man hastened to do so. "'The second demonstration, gentlemen,' said the chemist, "'is less spectacular, but far more pertinent than the one you have just witnessed.' He took the fly by the wings and prepared another lump of sugar, sprinkling a crushed pill from the other vial upon it. "'When he is small enough, I am going to try to put him on the ring, if he will stay still,' said the chemist. The doctor pulled the plate containing the ring forward until it was directly under the light, and everyone crowded closer to watch. Already the fly was almost too small to be held. The chemist tried to set it on the ring, but could not, so with his other hand he brushed it lightly into the plate, where it lay, a tiny black speck against the gleaming whiteness of the china. "'Watch it carefully, gentlemen,' he said as they bent closer. "'It's gone,' said the big business man. "'No, I can still see it,' said the doctor. Then he raised the plate closer to his face. "'Now it's gone,' he said. The chemist sat down in his chair. "'It is probably still there, only too small for you to see. In a few minutes, if it took a sufficient amount of the drug, it will be small enough to fall between the molecules of the plate.' "'Do you suppose it will find another inhabited universe down there?' asked the very young man. "'Who knows?' smiled the chemist. "'Very possibly it will. "'But the one we are interested in is here,' he added, touching the ring. "'Is it your intention to take this stuff yourself tonight?' asked the big businessman. "'If you will give me your help, I think so, yes. "'I have made all arrangements. "'The club has given us this room in absolute privacy for forty-eight hours.' Your meals will be served here when you want them, and I am going to ask you, gentlemen, to take turns watching and guarding the ring during that time. Will you do it? I should say we would, cried the doctor, and the others nodded assent. It is because I wanted you to be convinced of my entire sincerity that I have taken you so thoroughly into my confidence. Are those doors locked? The very young man locked them. "'Thank you,' said the chemist, starting to disrobe. In a moment he stood before them, attired in a woolen bathing suit of pure white. Over his shoulders was strapped tightly a narrow leather harness, supporting two silken pockets, one under each armpit. Into each of these he placed one of the vials, first laying four pills from one of them upon the table. At this point the banker rose from his chair and selected another in the further corner of the room. He sank into it, a crumpled heap, and wiped the beads of perspiration from his face with a shaking hand. "'I have every expectation,' said the chemist, "'that this suit and harness will contract in size uniformly with me. If the harness should not, then I shall have to hold the vials in my hand.' On the table, directly under the light, he spread a large silk handkerchief, upon which he placed the ring. He then produced a teaspoon which he handed to the doctor. "'Please listen carefully,' he said, "'for perhaps the whole success of my adventure and my life itself 
may depend upon your actions during the next few minutes. You will realize, of course, that when I am still large enough to be visible to you, I shall be so small that my voice may be inaudible. Therefore, I want you to know now just what to expect. When I am something under a foot high, I shall step upon that handkerchief, where you will see my white suit plainly against its black surface. When I become less than an inch high, I shall run over to the ring and stand beside it. When I have diminished to about a quarter of an inch, I shall climb upon it, and as I get smaller, will follow its surface until I come to the scratch. I want you to watch me very closely. I may miscalculate the time and wait until I am too small to climb upon the ring, or I may fall off. In either case, you will place the spoon beside me, and I will climb into it. You will then do your best to help me get on the ring. Is all this quite clear? The doctor nodded assent. Very well. Watch me as long as I remain visible. If I have an accident, I shall take the other drug and endeavor to return to you at once. This you must expect at any moment during the next forty-eight hours. Under all circumstances, if I am alive, I shall return at the expiration of that time. And, gentlemen, let me caution you most solemnly. Do not allow that ring to be touched until the length of time has expired. Can I depend upon you? Yes, they answered breathlessly. After I have taken the pills, the chemist continued, I shall not speak unless it is absolutely necessary. I do not know what my sensations will be, and I want to follow them as closely as possible. He then turned out all the lights in the room, with the exception of the center electrolier that shone down directly on the handkerchief and ring. The chemist looked about him. Goodbye, gentlemen, he said, shaking hands all round. Wish me luck. And without hesitation, he placed the four pills in his mouth and washed them down with a swallow of water. Silence fell on the group as the chemist seated himself and covered his face with his hands. For perhaps two minutes, the tenseness of the silence was unbroken, save by the heavy breathing of the banker as he lay huddled in his chair. "'Oh, my God, he's growing smaller,' whispered the big businessman in a horrified tone to the doctor. The chemist raised his head and smiled at them. Then he stood up, steadying himself against the chair. He was less than four feet high. Steadily he grew smaller before their horrified eyes. Once he made as if to speak, and the doctor knelt down beside him. "'It's all right. Good-bye,' he said in a tiny voice. Then he stepped upon the handkerchief. The doctor knelt on the floor beside it, the wooden spoon ready in his hand, while the others, except the banker, stood behind him. The figure of the chemist, standing motionless near the edge of the handkerchief, seemed now like a little white wooden toy, hardly more than an inch in height. Waving his hand and smiling, he suddenly started to walk and then ran swiftly over to the ring. By the time he reached it, somewhat out of breath, he was little more than twice as high as the width of its band. Without pausing, he leaped up and sat astraddle, leaning over and holding to it tightly with his hands. In another moment, he was on his feet, on the upper edge of the ring, walking carefully along its circumference toward the scratch. 
The big businessman touched the doctor on the shoulder and tried to smile. He's making it, he whispered. As if in answer, the little figure turned and waved its arms. They could just distinguish its white outline against the gold surface underneath. I don't see him, said the very young man in a scared voice. He's right near the scratch, answered the doctor, bending closer. Then, after a moment, he's gone. He rose to his feet. Good Lord, why haven't we a microscope? I never thought of that, said the big businessman. We could have watched him for a long time yet. Well, he's gone now, returned the doctor, and there is nothing for us to do but wait. I hope he finds that girl, sighed the very young man, as he sat chin in hand beside the handkerchief. End of chapter 2